the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It was actually supposed to be the first time that I was closing alone. I'm young, but I thought it was pretty cool. I'm going to be working alone, going to be closing. So that should have been me, kind of getting the chills thinking about it now. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. What's up, Lex? What's up, Jack? What's up? What's up? Wow, we really do sound similar sometimes when people are like, <laughs> I can't tell you apart. I'm like, you're crazy until we do something like that. Well, that's what happens when you spend so much time with somebody. Like your mannerisms, the way you speak, like your stupid idioms you say, you all kind of meld into one. That's right. But we're happy to be one melded idiot for all of you here today. <laughs> exactly. Together we equal one big regular brain. Yes. And we're happy to share that knowledge with you. Before we start today's episode, there's two things. One, if you're listening to this and you have a story to tell and you have not written us yet, we want you to write us. And if you wrote in the past and you didn't get a response, write us again, right? Oh, 100%. Especially if it was like a year ago, two years ago, I've always been womaning the email accounts myself. And I'm a little spacey sometimes. Sometimes things get slipped through the cracks and we want to hear your stories. And sometimes your emails go to spam and I'm better about checking the spam folder now. So don't hold back, reach out. We want to hear from you. Yeah. And the second thing is please join our Patreon if you're looking for more first degree content. We have one episode, full length true crime episode every single week for you over there. Lots of backlogged. So if you're trying to listen to all these podcasts out there that suck and you keep coming back, but you need more, join us over there. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Sometimes we can't always understand the rhyme or reason behind why bad things happen. Life is stressful, our personal lives, getting through school, and of course, work is stressful. Most of us can relate to the reality of getting unexpectedly fired or dealing with something abrupt that causes you to leave a job that we like suddenly. The fear and uncertainty of losing a job that we need. These are all curveballs that we adapt to. And months later, usually, we look at that event that seemed awful at the time with optimism. And it turns out that the universe actually did us a huge favor. We begin today's case on August 27th of 1990. It was actually the 35th anniversary of the Guinness Book of World Records publishing date. I was obsessed with the Guinness Book of World Records when I was younger. I don't know why. I was too. Always looking at the weird records. It's like, what are people doing? Like, how did you think of this record? Well, I wanted to think of one that no one had done and do and win. Yeah. But I haven't done it. You would. You just have to think of something so obscure that it's like holding your breath in a red barn mm. while covered in chicken feathers for the longest amount of time of five seconds or something. I can do that. Yeah. Maybe we'll try. Okay. 
Deal. So on the music charts, dance music trio Sweet Sensation was at the number one spot with their song If Wishes Came True, followed by Bon Jovi at number two with Blaze of Glory. Again, it's 1990. It's that weird timing that we've done a lot of stories recently at for music is just a little bizarre. We get Eagle Eye Cherry in a few years after this. That's right. Uh, then everything just is, is so nice for a while. So at the box office, people are going to see Dark Man starring Liam Neeson and, of course, Ghost, a classic, classic, classic with Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and Whoopi Goldberg. And the setting for today's story is Albuquerque, New Mexico, sitting in the north-central area of the state. New Mexico is about 62 miles southwest of the state capital of Santa Fe, culturally diverse with eclectic food, a rich history, and high desert scenery. Albuquerque is also known as the hot air ballooning capital of the world. I've still never been in a hot air balloon, have you? No. Not yet. Founded in 1706 by Spanish colonists, the city's Native American, Hispanic, and Latino heritage is key to Albuquerque's identity as one of the oldest cities in the state. And of course, we'd be remiss not to mention that Albuquerque is the setting for the multi-Emmy award-winning smash TV show Breaking Bad. One of the best. And Albuquerque was also home to our first degree for today's story, and her name is Jennifer. Today, Jennifer lives in Illinois, but back in the summer of 1990, she was 15 years old and in high school, living in Albuquerque. Being a Gen Xer, things were a lot different for Jennifer and young people in general back then. At the time, my childhood was probably normal and like everybody else's, and maybe it was just the time. I was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s, and I just think the whole latchkey kid and whatnot, we were very independent. And in Albuquerque, you could get a driver's license when you were 15. I think you still can, where in most places you have to wait until you're 16. Wanting her own money like many other teens, Jennifer decided to look for a job. I was very rebellious. My parents had gotten divorced when I was 14, when I was a freshman in high school. And we lived with my dad. He was a complete penny pincher, whereas my mom had always given us money. And so basically, if I wanted to do anything, if I wanted to buy clothes, if I wanted to have more than $10 for lunch money, if I wanted to go to a movie with my friends, I was going to have to find my own way to make money. Jennifer's 19-year-old sister was working at a furniture store at a local strip mall, so she thought it would be a good idea to look for a job in there as well. That way, she would have a family member nearby, and they could also carpool to work together. In the strip mall, there was also a Subway sandwich restaurant, so Jennifer applied and got the job. I lied and said I was 16, which is just another funny thing to think about from the time because nobody verified that. (laughs) So as soon as I got a car, I basically started trying to work and and make money. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Started applying at places not too far from my house and got a job at the subway. I was working like 40 hours a week because I was money hungry as a teenager and wanted to do all sorts of shopping probably. Jennifer was stoked to get this job. And at first she mostly worked in the back doing prep work. Most of the people that worked at the subway were young teenager or kind of young adult people, obviously. This was kind of minimum wage, not somebody who's making a career out of it outside of, I guess, if you were in management. We all got along. 
there was mostly like male colleagues. And I would say most of them were, I was obviously the youngest. I wasn't even quite frankly of legal working age. I think even if I had been 16, I think everyone else was probably like 18 or above. But then a new manager was hired, a guy in his mid-20s named Richard, and he took a bit of a liking to Jennifer. A new manager started working, and he took an interest in me, started giving me more hours. I think I had been working more part-time before that, but I was getting a lot more hours. I started being more upfront. He had me running the cash register. He had me, like, closing which is kind of interesting for a 15-year-old. I was the one balancing the cash register. So I'd like to think it's because I was very smart and learned quickly and worked hard. So all this sounds pretty great for somebody like Jennifer. You know, Richard was really trying to foster the young employee's career progression, but it wasn't exactly that. Jennifer got a real creepy vibe from him. He was apparently really weird and made Jennifer extremely uncomfortable, which was made even more gross by the predatory nature of it. So for context, Richard was married to a 26-year-old girl. He was in his mid-20s. He should not be hitting on a 15-year-old. It also became clear that he had an interest in me because he would flirt quite a bit and he was rather creepy. But I feel like the way I picture him, he was and there's nothing wrong with it, but I picture him a little plump and like somebody that didn't shower very often, like almost had like a greasy look to him. He wasn't always on shift, but when he was there, obviously he had a, a lot of control in what you could do and whatnot. He was flirting with me, made me very uncomfortable. According to police records, Richard left the subway that May and a new manager came on board. However, things escalated one day a few months later when Richard's wife, who, for the purpose of our show today, we'll be calling Jane, came into the store while Jennifer was working and suddenly verbally attacked her. Jane accused the confused 15-year-old child of having an affair with her husband Richard, the manager who had left recently. Jane was so out of control that she physically lunged at Jennifer, having to be held back. His wife came in and... She was out of her mind, crazy, just kind of approached me, screaming at me. I don't even know what she's talking about. And she freaked me out. She scared me and I was crying. And I was clearly scared because I wasn't crying because I was sad or upset or anything. I'm sure fear, anger, combination, whatever, because she was just crazy. Like people were holding her back like she was going to attack me screaming at everybody around that I'm hitting on her husband. And trust me when I say I was not, he was really gross. (laughs) I was really young and I thought I was the shit, to be quite frank. I had, my boyfriend was a year older than me and he was the quarterback of the football team. I was not flirting with this creepy manager at the subway. Jennifer was shaken for more than one reason. One, She was 15 years old, and a grown woman was lunging and screaming at her. I mean, I'm a grown woman, and if another grown woman was screaming and lunging, I'd be scared. So Terrified. Put that in perspective. Number two, the assertion that anything was going on between she and her former manager, who was 11 years older than her, was absurd. And she shared earlier that she was repulsed and creeped out by this guy. His advances and efforts at flirtation were consistently rebuffed by her. And obviously, it would have been illegal if something was going on. Absolutely. (laughs) Insane. 
So immediately following the confrontation, Jennifer left the subway and went to the furniture store where her sister worked, and she arrived there in tears. I left, and I went to where my sister was working, walked across the parking lot to this furniture store. And the furniture store was owned by one of my dad's really good friends. My sister had been working there. I'd been in and out all summer, so we know a bunch of people. But we sat at like a kitchen table-like thing in the store, and I was crying, telling her what happened. And she called over several guys. And in my mind, years later, I'm picturing big, muscular guys, the guys you think of in a furniture store that are moving furniture around and stuff. But they were pissed when they were hearing this story. After hearing what happened to Jennifer, a few of the guys working at the furniture store went over to the subway. They warned Richard and Jane to stay away from Jennifer, and needless to say, she never returned to work. Three of them kind of left and went over to the subway to confront the manager. And they came back. I don't know what happened. I didn't go. I don't know if there was a physical altercation or if it was just verbal. But when they came back, they told me that I not to worry about anything. I wouldn't be hearing from them anymore, but then then told me, but you're not working there anymore. You're not going back. Jennifer quit without notice because there was no question that all around, this was an unsafe environment for her to be in. What had happened was unacceptable. And Jennifer was mortified by the entire thing. I think at this point, someone had called my dad to come down as well. And so it was very clear I was not going to be working at that subway anymore because the incident was just crazy. But then less than a week after Jennifer quit, something else shocking happened. The subway was robbed with the perpetrator shooting dead the lone employee who was working the closing shift there. The victim was 19-year-old college sophomore Greg Hunter. He had only been working there for three short weeks, and he'd gotten the job at subway to pay his way through school. When Jennifer learned what happened, her blood ran cold. She was supposed to be working that shift, and the only reason she wasn't was because she didn't feel safe returning to work after Richard's wife attacked her. Had Jennifer not quit, it could very well have been her who didn't come home from work that night. It was actually supposed to be the first time that I was closing alone. I'm young, but I thought it was pretty cool. I'm going to be working alone, going to be closing it, whatever, but obviously I quit or other people quit for me that day. And so I I was not going to be working. It's all over the news that they found him the next morning dead. So that should have been me, which is just crazy. So this has got to be one of the most chilling cosmic shufflings of the deck that we have ever heard. And Jennifer was understandably rattled. How could this have happened and why? Was it a pure coincidence or was it a targeted attack? To get the answers to these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Following the shooting of 19 year old Greg Hunter at Subway, the police arrived and tried to wrap their heads around what happened. They were looking for any evidence that could shed light on who had done this and what their motives could be. So when the store's manager arrived at the Subway on the morning after Greg's shift, they found the front door unlocked, leading them to believe the store had been burglarized overnight. The new manager called the police and at the same time noticed Greg's vehicle was still in the parking lot. But as he stood in the store, there was no sign of Greg. They also called Greg's dad, who he was living with at the time, to see if he knew where Greg was. 
Greg's dad confirmed that his son had not come home the night before, but he just assumed that Greg had gone to stay with his frat buddies, and this was something that he did usually late in the evening. So this was no cause for an alarm as far as his father was concerned. But when Greg's dad called the frat house, they hadn't seen or heard from him the previous night, and neither had Greg's mom. When police and the manager entered the darkened store around 9.30 a.m., they went into the back room, where the walk-in freezer was located. And that's when the picture of what actually happened started to come into focus. As they searched the subway and approached the freezer, they opened it and made a heartbreaking discovery. Inside was Greg's lifeless body. He'd sustained multiple gunshot wounds. All except one of them had been fired at him from behind, as Greg had his head down. What remained unclear was how this murder had played out. Had Greg been caught off guard as he worked with his back to his attacker? Or had his killer walked Greg into the freezer at gunpoint? So at this point, the police worked to construct a timeline. The subway closed at midnight, and based on the information they collected from the other businesses in the same strip mall, it appeared that Greg had been killed sometime between midnight and 9 a.m. And it turns out the perpetrator had shot out the store's security camera and taken the CCTV tape. Right, and that's not all. They also stole all of the cash from the cash register, and they tried to pry open the safe with a crowbar before giving up and fleeing. Investigators also noted that the killer had stolen part of Greg's uniform, which was odd. Whoever it was had taken his cap and shirt, perhaps to pass himself off as an employee for some reason, maybe to use it in another robbery. They weren't sure at that point. But apart from this murder appearing to be a robbery gone bad, the precise circumstances of what had happened to Greg were very hazy. They knew it was a robbery. The person had come in and immediately shot the camera out because there was a camera. So somebody knew where the camera was. And then it was around the time that we typically would be depositing money. There was a time-locked safe, and so you would be locking money. And what was interesting was most of the cash had been locked in the safe already and was there. So the robber had only gotten what was in the cash register. But the person had a mask on, the camera was immediately shot out, and there were no witnesses. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. 
It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Greg's family and friends were completely gutted at his sudden loss. He was a kind 19-year-old with tons of people who loved him, a college student with plans for his future, and with the work ethic and drive to put himself through school, a young man who could have done anything with his life. Greg was born on July 18, 1971, in Ethiopia, where his dad was stationed with the U.S. Navy. When Greg was a child, his family returned to the United States, settling in Albuquerque, and by this time, he had a younger brother. As he grew up, Greg fell in love with skiing, and he became a member of the Sandia Peak Ski Patrol when he was just 14 years old. Right, and after graduating from Manzano High School in 1989, Greg enrolled at the University of New Mexico, where he was a pre-med student, but was planning to swap majors to environmental engineering, so clearly a very smart kid. He was an active and adventurous guy. Greg also discovered rock climbing at college and loved getting out to climb the Sandia and Geminez Mountains. But his social circle was important to him as well, and so he was thrilled when he pledged with UNM's Phi Gamma Delta fraternity in his first fall semester. Greg lived in the frat house until the following summer when he moved in with his dad downtown to save money. But he always was at that frat house with his buddies and loved taking local scenic trips with them. At the time, I did know who he was, and I think we'd worked on a couple of shifts together, but I, I wasn't friendly with him. I think he was in college. I knew him and had worked side by side with him on a few occasions, but I wasn't close with him. According to the Albuquerque Journal, following Greg's murder, his frat brothers started a fund to raise money to assist with his funeral expenses, as well as establish a scholarship in his memory. It's a testament to the kind of person Greg was that the ski patrol he used to work for as well also set up a memorial fund too in his honor. Given Greg's senseless loss, the police were focused on finding out what had happened to him and bringing whoever had harmed him to justice. In the days following the murder, the community was still reeling when Jennifer received a phone call. They had closed the subway, obviously, investigation, et cetera. They had kind of clean up. But it was about a week later. And at this point, they hadn't figured out who had done it yet. But the owner of the subway had called my house and was talking to my dad, trying to convince him to let me come back to work because they needed employees because people didn't want to work there. But obviously, I didn't go back to work there. He basically told the owner, no, and and don't bother trying to call here again because she's not going to be working there. At this point, had two traumatic incidences, one with the manager and his crazy wife, and then... Now a person had been shot and killed, and I'm 15 years old. Jennifer's dad obviously said no, and Jennifer had absolutely no interest in returning given all that had happened. The days and weeks began to drag on as detectives worked the case, trying to figure out who took the life of this innocent college student. 
Was this a random robbery? Was this someone who knew Greg? Even though he hadn't been working there long, Greg had consistently been doing the closing shift several times per week. So it was either a coincidence with the perpetrator choosing the quietest time of the day and the week, or it could have been somebody who knew that Greg generally had that closing shift. And when questioned, no one in Greg's life could think of anyone who would want to hurt him. He was a quiet kind of guy, but he loved hanging out with his friends, and he was firmly focused on his future. He was a person who loved challenging himself to get out of his comfort zone, once telling his frat brothers, you only live once, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Authorities appealed to anybody who had been near that subway during the night in question, and they urged anybody who noticed anything unusual that night to come forward. The news circulated what information they had, hoping for any kind of lead. I think they even played video of the person coming in the store, if I remember correctly, to be like, does anybody recognize anything about this person? These days, we'd like to think that there are workplace safety protocols in place for those who work late night shifts that provide some sort of protection, especially if they're handling money. Because when robberies happen, the family of someone who loses their life at work may be entitled to take legal action against the business or the business owner or the company. And not to single out Subway, but when Jennifer and Greg worked there, to have just one person scheduled to work a closing shift seems like a really bad idea especially when you consider that Jennifer was only 15 years old at the time and was due to work that very shift herself. We always used to say, you know, oh, it was the 70s, but like it was the 90s. Yeah. Growing up in the 90s, you know, we were three, four years old when this particular case happened, but we weren't far behind this. I mean, the latchkey sort of generation was this and people kind of played fast and loose at work. Like I remember I worked at an ice cream store when I was 14. They didn't check. They didn't ask my mom. I was supposed to be 15. I lied. And Jennifer did the same thing. Actually, we joked about it during our conversation, but I was like, I want to work at this ice cream store. I need money. So you lie. And like, who's going to verify it these days? They would. Like I feel like a hundred percent, you know? So it's interesting for sure. Yeah. What's also interesting as it relates to this case is that according to the Albuquerque Journal, the same year that Greg was murdered, 11 restaurants across the city and Santa Fe had committed 39 violations of child labor laws. Part of the problem was the infrequent nature of business inspections, meaning employers could exploit underage teen employees when it came to scheduling, and sounds like a bit of that was happening here. Strict laws were in place only when it came to scheduling 14- and 15-year-olds, who were restricted in the number of weekly hours they could work and even needed work permits from their school district in certain cases. And this was even during the summer months when school was out. So back to our case and the search for those responsible for the murder of Greg Hunter. The investigation had all but lost steam when early on the morning of October 1st, five weeks after Greg's murder, Jennifer's former manager, Richard, that gross, creepy guy who had since left Subway, contacted the police. Right. So it turns out, He had some information to share with them. Turns out, he wanted to confess. He knew something. And more than that, he had been the perpetrator. He had been the shooter who claimed Greg Hunter's life. 26-year-old Richard James Yarger arrived at the Albuquerque Police Department and identified himself as the killer. He went on to say that he killed Greg while in the midst of robbing the store. He added that the weapon, a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol, was at his house. Richard, who had no known criminal record, was charged with armed robbery, kidnapping, an open count of murder, and two counts of evidence tampering for allegedly hiding the videotape from the CCTV camera at Subway. 
and for taking part of Greg's uniform after shooting him. For the murder, he was held on $250,000 bond and had an additional $50,000 bond for the other two charges. He had turned himself in. They announced that they had basically solved the case and figured out who'd done it. And they announced on the news that the former manager of the store is who had done the robbery. During his confession, Richard shared details with the police that only the killer could have known. Details that had never been made public, including information about Greg's shirt and cap being taken and the caliber of the murder weapon. When a search warrant was executed at Richard's home, officers found evidence linking him to the crime, including the gun he used and the ammunition. The videotape from the store, along with the items from Greg's uniform, were still missing, but one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence found in Richard's home was a letter. So by this point, Richard was estranged from his wife, Jane. You know Jane, the woman who had come into the store when Jennifer was working and accosted her. But Richard had written Jane a letter that he never sent. And when authorities found it, they found it to be suicidal in nature. It had been written in September of that year and said, quote, I killed a young boy last month named Greg, and I just can't live with it anymore. I can't believe I did it all for $1,900. I had no shame or fear of what I did that night, but now I do. Richard Yarger was arraigned on October 15th in Albuquerque District Court, and his indictment was serious. Because while New Mexico has since abolished the death penalty in 2009, at the time of Greg's murder, it was still in use. And if Richard was convicted, this was the punishment he was facing. The investigation continued as prosecutors worked to build an airtight case against Richard. The nature of the relationship between Richard and Greg, if any, wasn't clear. Based on each of their timelines working at the subway, they hadn't really worked together. Greg had started working at Subway well after Richard left. For the two months prior to the murder, Richard had been working in a sales job at a chemical manufacturing and food safety company. Detectives spoke with Richard's estranged wife, Jane, and she told officers that when she and Richard lived together, he was dealing with serious financial problems. She also had reason to believe that prior to the robbery, while Richard still worked at Subway, he had stolen from them previously and then altered the business's financial records. Part of me also wonders, he ultimately robs this store. So maybe they had drug problems. And so then you have no clue what's going through their minds or what's being said. It was very bizarre. A lot of these people have no moral compass. And so he clearly had that. It could have been drugs. He was relatively young, married with a baby, could have been desperate for money. I'm skeptical too, because I'm thinking, well, maybe he was about to get caught. And so he thought if he turned himself in, they'd go easier on him, but I don't know. Based on the available reporting, it seems Richard found himself in a situation where he was so desperate for money, he didn't want to leave any witnesses behind. So what's this guy's deal? Born on April 2nd, 1964 in Canandaigua, New York, Richard was one of 12 children. Ironically, like Greg's dad, Richard's dad also served in the U.S. Navy. Richard himself was a veteran as well, serving in the Army for three and a half years from 1982 to 1986. By the time he turned himself in, he'd only been in Albuquerque for around six months, having moved there from New York with his wife Jane and their baby. Following his confession, Richard was arrested, arraigned, and was headed to trial. And we do have to acknowledge that without him coming forward, it's very possible that Greg's murder would have gone unsolved, as many do. I mean, think about it. It's not like a time where there were 
ring cameras everywhere, neighboring businesses with really high-tech security. I mean, we had CCTV surveillance and security cameras, but they weren't the good ones we have now. (laughs) You know, so given that it appeared to be a random robbery, it really could have gone unsolved. So the fact that he turned himself in is a bigger deal than it would be today, I think. Yeah. Not to say it absolves him of the horrific thing he did, which is take a young man's life. Because as far as we can tell, it's not like it was a matter of time before the cops came knocking on his door. Like, they had no reason to look into this guy. Yeah, there are no leads going to him. And he had no criminal record. Like, no reason to suspect him. Crazy. So, almost a year to the day after Richard took Greg's life, on August 26, 1991, Richard pled guilty to all of the charges and returned for the prosecution taking the death penalty off the table. The 27-year-old agreed to unspecified aggravating circumstances on all but the murder plea. This meant the usual standard sentences for all the other charges were increased. Richard received life in prison on the murder charge, which in New Mexico meant 30 years without eligibility for parole. But he also got 13 years for armed robbery, three years for false imprisonment, and two years each for the two evidence tampering charges. So in total, Richard would have to serve at least 40 years before becoming eligible for parole. At sentencing, Richard apologized to the court and to Greg's family, as well as his own, thanking the state for sparing his life. In his apology, Richard told the court he robbed a store, quote, while in pursuit of money to bring my broken family back together, quote, and spoke of feeling suicidal before he decided to turn himself into authorities. But Jennifer is skeptical and can't forget that even if the murder had not occurred, Richard made her feel a way that no one should ever feel. He was not a good person, whatever way you sliced it. I just have a hard time thinking of him as a good guy at all, partly obviously because he shot and killed somebody. But, you know, I think I was probably even, which sounds horrible, more traumatized by the sexual harassment at work and then the wife accosting me. That probably did me personally a a little bit more damage than the rest and quite frankly saved my life. So I don't think he was a good guy. But yes, I think most people, if they killed somebody, it would eat them up inside if if they had a conscience at all. For all his apologies, which sounded shallow considering what had been taken from Greg Hunter's family, just the very next day, Richard tried to break out of the city county jail. So he's not that sorry. Officers caught him trying to smash a window in his fifth floor cell with five bedsheets tied together like something out of the movies. So doesn't appear to me that that's a man who's particularly remorseful. He was obviously caught and put back in prison where he belonged. But then three years later, Richard was back in the news again, but this time for a different reason. On September 6, 1994, the 30-year-old was found dead in a cell at the penitentiary of New Mexico. The cause of death was still under investigation, but authorities advised that there were no signs of foul play. Given Richard was so young and without any apparent health issues, it appears he may have taken his own life, as there were no further reports published about the manner or cause of death. It's unfortunate that Richard couldn't face the music and serve out the sentence he was given for taking Greg's life, because in a way, it makes Greg's murder just that much more senseless. He had so much potential and was excited about where life was taking him. And as his mother, Jean, said at Richard's sentencing, Greg was a vibrant young man whose loss was utterly devastating to his entire family. They are the ones who have to continue living with such a huge hole in their lives that can never be filled. And the sliding doors nature of it all has stayed with Jennifer all these years later. 
when you're young, you feel invincible. And so at the time, I don't think it was as obvious to me that, oh my God, that could have been me. I mean, I did have that thought, but it wasn't as shocking to me as I think it should have been. I always find it fascinating now when I tell this story to people and their reaction, because I, I feel like I didn't react as forcefully about it at the time as that I even get just telling the story to people now. For a while, like in my early 20s, I remember it being like you'd be at a work dinner and people would be like, oh, tell us your craziest story, like around a dinner or something. I'd always tell the story. So it became almost like a parlor trick for a while. And I don't know if that's how I dealt with it when I've told my children about it and I get more emotional then because you think about the ripple effects and the impact of if I hadn't been here, then they wouldn't be here. And that's when you start thinking about it more, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, but me, it kind of hit me more, I think, later. I think it's scary. It makes you think how fragile your existence is. You can't control every scenario and something horrible could happen at any given minute to anybody. I think there's just things that have gone on where I think my sister and I have both very much learned that you have to listen to your yourself, your body, the way you're feeling and make people hear you. We need to be the ones willing to fight for certain things. Part of that came, that was one of those experiences that, that gave me the voice to fight for myself. If Jennifer's story tells us anything, it's the most stark and sobering of reminders to always, always, always trust your gut. The near miss Jennifer experienced has gone on to shape her life in ways she couldn't comprehend as a teenager. Only as an adult years later, and a mom herself, has she been able to reflect on the really important lesson in all this, which is that the very second an environment doesn't feel safe, you remove yourself. No ifs, ands, or buts. Had Jennifer not had a place to go, and people around her to provide support and validation. She might have been convinced or pressured to return to a place where she'd always felt uncomfortable and on edge in the first place. And we all know how that would have ended, as it shouldn't have ended for Greg or anyone for that matter. And women and girls, I mean, even every job I've ever had, there is some level of like discomfort. So it's hard to discern what's dangerous discomfort or discomfort we're supposed to be tolerating, but we're really not supposed to be tolerating any. And that really is the moral of the story because the guy who creeped her out, that wasn't an innocent situation. He ended up murdering a coworker, you know? So these gut feelings we have, they are so, so important. So don't ignore it no matter what, because when your spidey senses are on high alert, it's usually for a pretty good reason. Well, a huge thank you to Jennifer for being our first degree for today's episode. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Jack Vanek, Alexis Linkletter, the first degree. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. And uh, come back tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. 
Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Records, The Albuquerque Journal, The Carlsbad Current Argus, The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, and Find a Grave. And as always, our first Greek guest is always our largest source. <laughs>